Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Friday, May the 20th, 2022. Happy birthday, Dad. Hope you're having a great trip. I love you. This is the Guy Benson Show. I am Guy Benson, broadcasting live from Nashville, Tennessee. Today, I'm here for an event. Had a lot of fun, actually, last night here in Nashville. This town is fun. It's kind of got that Vegas vibe, kind of, sort of. Very different still in a lot of ways, but the party town atmosphere is absolutely undeniable. And this place is just expanding like crazy. At a dinner I was at last night, I met John Rich of Big and Rich. He's got that Fox Nation show. And he was just fantastic. He did an interview on stage. Very funny. Quite insightful. He performed a few songs, so it felt like a very Nashville experience. And then he was shamelessly plugging his bar on Broadway, which is called Redneck Riviera. Actually told a very funny story about how he was able to nail down that copyright to build an entire brand around that. So a few of us actually went to the bar for a few drinks later in the evening, and there was live music. They're playing a lot of country, but not exclusively country. Some of the Cranberries, their famous song. A Dixie Chick song that I admittedly really like, even though they're, you know, commies or whatever. I do like some of their music. It was just great. It was hot. I had a beer. It just felt fantastic. So I'm very pleased to be here in Nashville. And if you are a Tennessean, hello. You're very happy to be here in your state. I got to get the show back on track here. (laughs) Our website is GuyBensonShow.com. GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free on demand every single day. Plus bonus Benson on the weekends. All the items that you might need, all the resources you might need about this fine program right there. GuyBensonShow.com. Here's the lineup. Since we are in Tennessee, why not chat and catch up with U.S. Senator Bill Haggerty, Republican of Tennessee. He is joining us later on this hour. He also was U.S. Ambassador to Japan under the Trump administration, and President Biden is in Asia. He'll be in South Korea and also Japan, so we will ask Senator Haggerty about that, plus some domestic issues as well. Another lawmaker coming up in our next hour, Congressman Dan Crenshaw, Republican of Texas. We always appreciate having him here on the show. It's Friday, so it's time for Fridays with Cat. Cat Timp will be here to kick off our final hour, the happy hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink in the 5 p.m. Eastern hour. And I mentioned the Long Drink here at the top of the show because one of that 
Beverages co-founders here in the United States, the Finnish long drink. He will be here to cap off the show in our home stretch. So I am looking forward to today's Happy Friday edition of the Guy Benson Show. And maybe it is a slightly happier Friday because even though I'm not on vacation, I'm here for work and I've got an event tomorrow, like when you're in Vegas, you kind of feel like you're on vacation, even if you're not. It's hard to avoid. They've got those trolleys going around with people imbibing and pedaling away and listening to music and wooing at you as you walk by in the street. I don't know if I would want that 24-7 in the city where I live all the time, but, I mean, the economy here is just going gangbusters. And much like Vegas, I feel like if you're here for three days or so, that's the perfect amount of time. There's bachelor parties and bachelorette parties in particular everywhere here. It's like the eastern version, I guess, of Vegas. Maybe without the gambling. Do they have gambling here? I don't know. I'm not a gambler, so I haven't sought that out. Just the food and the beverage and the music. And it's tough to find a place with more live music, more places, and really good quality. Austin, Texas comes to mind as maybe up there in the running. But, I mean, Nashville's where it's at on that front, too. I swear I'm not doing, like, a commercial here for the Chamber of Commerce. I'm not. I'm just telling you uh, it's a fun time if you haven't been here or haven't been here in a while. So let's get to more serious matters. As we kick off today's show, as I mentioned, the president in Asia, and I wish him well. I hope that he represents our country well. I hope that some of the goals, especially countering China, are achieved or advanced on this trip. I do think that we are long past the era of sort of the bipartisan truce tradition where you don't criticize the president when he's out of the country, right? The partisanship stopping at water's edge. That has been violated so many times by both parties that I don't really think it holds anymore. It's not really a tradition. I still think it's probably a good look, a preferable approach to not completely savage a president while he's gone, while he's abroad representing all of us, whether you voted for him or not, and I didn't. I want him to represent us as well as possible. But I also no longer believe it's like unseemly or violating some unwritten thing if you criticize him, because that courtesy certainly was not afforded to his predecessor or his predecessor or his predecessor. I'm kind of wondering when the whole thing broke down, but it does feel like a bygone element of political discourse. And maybe the president is happy to be far away from Washington, D.C., quite frankly, given the way things are going in the country, the way things are going for him specifically on the political side of things. There is a new Quinnipiac poll that is out today, and it is just abysmal for President Biden. In this poll among adults, Biden is at 35% approval rating. And when you narrow it down a little bit to registered voters, he's still in the 30s. He's at 38% among registered voters. And that's not an outlier, right? Some people will point to one data set and hype it up, even if it doesn't really align with the bulk 
or the average of the polling, unfortunately for the White House and for Team Biden, and especially for his party, since Biden won't be on the ballot this November, but he kind of effectively will be. And every Democrat will be laden with that baggage up and down the ballot. To be in the 30s in Quinnipiac is not an outlier. In fact, if you look at some of the last few polls released this week, NBC News has Biden at 39%. NPR, PBS, and Marist have the president at 39%. The Associated Press, they've got a new survey today. Biden's approval rating, 39%. And then, as I mentioned, the Q poll, he's at 38 So, seems like a pretty strong pattern there. The trend line seems pretty steady in a very bad way for President Biden. I mean, if he were at 44 45%, I think it would be a pretty bad omen heading into the midterms. To be barely at 40 or even struggling to hit 40, below that, if you want to call it Mendoza line, in four consecutive polls that I just rattled off, all in the 30s, is just catastrophic. If the election were held next Tuesday, I think the Dems would get wiped out. I think they would lose both houses of Congress. Now, as I mentioned yesterday, things can change. Not everything is fully baked in. There are matchups not yet set. There are primaries still undetermined that we're waiting on. I mean, they haven't even given an initial winner in the Pennsylvania Senate primary yet, and here we are three days later. I think that's ridiculous. I was on that soapbox yesterday. But the upshot is there's a long way to go between now and November, but not that long. And this far out, a point that I will continue to make, the most significant metric I think that you can look at to look into the future, right? If you want a crystal ball, nothing is perfect. It's always a little bit cloudy. But the metric that matters the most at this stage in a cycle, especially a midterm cycle, is the president's approval rating. And if he's in the high 30s, look out. Especially when they control everything and the country is so unhappy. right? The satisfaction level about the direction of the country is scraping the bottom of the barrel. In the aforementioned Quinnipiac poll, Republicans lead by four points on the generic congressional ballot. As we told you yesterday, the Democrats in their own internal campaign polling in battleground districts, they're down eight, which actually makes sense. If you're down four points nationally, which includes a bunch of very heavily blue districts, if you take the lockdown Democratic territory out of the equation and you just look at the battlegrounds, it would then follow that the plus four nationally would swell to plus eight in those battlegrounds, right? That The stories all kind of align right now. They all sort of fit together. You're not seeing a bunch of data points or, you know, fundamental directional indicators that are contradictory, Where it's like, well, on one hand, you've got these four things favoring the Republicans. On the other hand, there are these two or three that could really go the other way. And it's kind of a mixed bag and everyone's holding their breath waiting to see. At least at this moment, 
heading towards June of an election year, virtually every single meaningful arrow is pointed in the same direction. By the way, in that Quinnipiac poll that I cited, President Biden is now less popular among Hispanics than any other demographic, including age, uh, age rather, and gender. Maybe they should keep calling them Latinx voters to maintain this ingratiation project that's going so well. Biden is less popular among Hispanics than any other demographic in the Quinnipiac poll. And in yesterday's NPR-PBS poll, I was pointing out how he's also deep, deep underwater with other key groups, like parents, by roughly 20 points. They are going to turn out. Education is a crucial issue to them. Suburbanites, same deal. Young people, where Biden's in really big trouble, again, I don't think that they're going to wake up in November and say, let's all rush to the polls and pull the lever for the GOP. I don't think that's going to happen. Republicans ought to improve among young people, but I don't think that they're likely to win among the youngest demographic. The bigger concern about disaffected, disenchanted, apathetic, dissatisfied young people is they do what they often do, which is stay home in droves in this case. But with Hispanics, I think you're going to see a significant turnout. And Republicans, I mean, very clearly are making gains. There was another piece in the New York Times about how immigration politics is driving Hispanics into the arms of Republicans. It's the opposite of a lot of the conventional wisdom. And I think Democrats, to their horror, are looking at that saying, "Uh uh-oh, our absolute total failures at the border, which are born out of a pro-illegal immigration ideology that they think is going to benefit them politically, might be backfiring with the very voters they thought they were pandering to. It's like, hey, Latinxes, look, we've opened the border. Are you happy? See or no? And a lot of Hispanics are saying no. And Biden's numbers are terrible in that group. And some of that is absolutely driven by the border issue. I don't know if Republicans are going to win Hispanics nationally outright, but I think it's actually possible. The fact that it's even plausible is a major source of alarm bells for the Democrats. I do sort of wonder how many elections in a row would it take? Let's just say if the Democrats continue to lose Hispanics and Republicans start to win that demographic. How quickly would we start hearing about Hispanics being white supremacy adjacent? And if the, if the trajectory or the pattern continues, how soon would the Democrats start saying we need to build the wall? If all of a sudden their longstanding calculation about demographics being destiny and the growing Hispanic vote in the country isn't going the way that they always expected it would, do they change dramatically? I don't know. We'll see. I think we're a few years off from anything quite like that. But these are the types of questions that perhaps could be put to President Biden in a one-on-one interview. He has not done a single one of those in a 100 days. He answers questions here or there in different settings. But a sit-down interview, as we've talked about with various guests here on the show in the past, it's different. It's often more substantive. There's more opportunity for drilling down and pushback and follow-up questions and 
getting beyond just one talking point and moving on. Biden hasn't subjected him subjected himself to that anything like that for 100 days. And maybe part of the reason is we've seen the new press secretary, the way that she's answering basic questions about inflation and gas prices, and the answers are horrible. Maybe the press team and the comms team over at the White House has no confidence that Biden's answers would be any better. Can't really blame them if that's their assessment. But still, I think the American people deserve to have their president interviewed regularly without three-plus-month gaps. That's just me. So again, we salute him and wish him the best over in Asia. But boy, there is a problem back at home. Crisis after crisis across a whole litany of issues. And he's going to eventually come back to this problem. That's going to likely manifest itself in a major tangible way in just about five months. The Guy Benson Show is just getting started. It is Friday. Stay with us. We will be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table to Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. Here's a story from NPR that I tweeted about, and it's going pretty viral. Fourteen state populations were significantly miscounted in the 2020 census, a revelation that comes after the wrong numbers were already used to divvy up House seats for the next decade. So reapportionment is done. It's not going to change. But now we know that 14 states were significantly miscounted. So a group of them, six of them, were undercounted. And five of the six state populations that were undercounted are red states. Florida, Mississippi, Texas, Arkansas, Tennessee, undercounted. The only blue state was Illinois. And then of the overcounts, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight of those, six of the eight overcounts are blue states. Rhode Island, Massachusetts, New York, Delaware, Minnesota, and Hawaii. So the only exceptions out of the 14 are Utah and Ohio on overcounts and Illinois on on an undercount. So of the 14 errors, big errors, 11 of them favor Democrats and blue states. How did that happen? That is something I would like to learn more about. 11 out of 14? Hmm. Let's follow that story. It's the Guy Benson Show. Back after this. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Back on the Guy Benson Show, Friday, GuyBensonShow.com, 
podcasts always free every day, including the weekends. Bonus Benson. GuyBensonShow.com. It is all right there. Well, since we are doing the show from Nashville, it would make sense that we welcome in a politician, a political operator, and elected official from the state of Tennessee. Bill Haggerty is a U.S. senator from this state. He was first elected in 2020. Before that, he served as U.S. Ambassador to Japan under President Trump. And, Senator, it is good to have you back here on the show, and it is great to be in your state. Guy, it's uh, terrific to be on with you, particularly from my home state. So welcome to Tennessee, the greatest state in the nation. Uh, I'm delighted to have you here broadcasting today. Oh, well, I'm thrilled to be here. And I was saying at the top of the show in the open, Nashville is a dangerous city in the sense that it is fun. And you can have a lot of fun, maybe too much fun, every single night of the week. It's just a party down here all the time. So I'm having a really fun experience thus far. I want to start with you, if you don't mind, far afield from Tennessee, all the way over in the Pacific Rim and the Far East. President Biden is in South Korea. He will be going to Japan on this trip as well. I know one of the goals here in the administration is to send some strong signals about allies standing together against China and the Chinese Communist Party. A major part of your bio is your service as U.S. ambassador in Tokyo for years under President Trump. Given your expertise about the area and some of the dynamics in that region, how are you looking at this trip from the president? And what are some of the key areas that you think he ought to focus on where there could be some international consensus and maybe some bipartisan consensus? Well, I've been working in this area actually since uh, the late 1980s. I worked for a firm called the Boston Consulting Group that first sent me to Tokyo for three years. Back then, the world was a different place at that time, Guy. Japan had just overtaken the Soviet Union to become the number two economy in the world. Uh, You know, it was Japan Inc. Um, They were doing a great job at building everything uh, that that had innovation associated with it. Uh, They were beating us hard in the car industry. And, and, you know, we were, I think, quite concerned at that point in time because there was a trade war underway with Japan then. Uh, I fought in that trade war, working with American companies trying to enter that market. But I've been watching the region and, and, and the economies in that region develop ever since. China, at that point in time, was was not a factor economically. They were riding bicycles in Beijing. Uh, it was quite a different place. You roll forward to 2017 when I uh, moved back there. This time is or that time as U.S. ambassador to Japan. The environment had completely changed. China has become an economic juggernaut. Uh, they were allowed to accede to the WTO, the World Trade Organization, back in 2001. Uh, we opened our markets to them. They played by a different set of rules. They've subsidized their industries heavily. They've stolen their intellectual property. Um, they've made it very terms in their market, even though they have easy access to ours. And what's happened is we've ceded a tremendous amount of economic sovereignty, if you will, uh, and supply chains to China, making ourselves more vulnerable. Uh, that same vulnerability exists not only uh, between America and China, but Japan and South Korea have the same problem. They're just more proximate to it. So when I returned as ambassador, uh, I, I saw up front and up close uh, how aggressive China had become, uh, not just economically, which I think we're all well aware of here, but militarily as well, Guy. Uh, they now have more ships in their Navy than the United States does in its own. They're not as competent as ours, but they have built up and become very aggressive militarily. They are moving into the East China Sea and the South China Sea. That was, you know, that was really bad under the Obama administration. You may recall, Guy, those 
artificial islands that they built. Yes. Uh, you may yep. remember this. President Xi standing in the Rose Garden in 2015 telling President Obama that he had no intention of militarizing those islands. By 2016, he had completely militarized the islands. Uh, they've got turrets on them. They're armed. Uh, these, are, these are military stations, uh, stations in the South Pacific, the busiest sea lane in the world. One of the busiest commerce lanes in the world is right there. And China has moved very aggressively. Um, thank goodness when we came out there, uh, you know, it was, it was a different story. President Trump was standing strong. He called China for what it was. I think if you went back to 2015 and 2016 and tested and polled the American public about their concerns regarding China versus after the past, you know, after four years of President Trump, the American public woke up under President Trump's leadership about the concerns and the, the great danger that China posed, again, to us from an economic standpoint. I think people were already getting it, but from a military and from a diplomatic standpoint, they have taken predatory postures every opportunity they could. So now we are we're in a situation where President Biden is making his first trip to the region. And, you know, I think he's said a lot of the right things. He's, he's suggested that he's going to continue to support the partnership between the United States, Japan, India and Australia. Uh, I've encouraged President Biden to, um, to, to you know, broaden that, to include South Korea. I'm glad that he's going to go to Seoul. I think South Korea can actually be a strong partner as well. I actually led the first congressional delegation, the first official trip from the United States Senate to the region about a month ago. And it was a bipartisan trip. Senators Cardin from Maryland and Senators Cornyn from uh Texas joined me in that trip, and we were there to show that we have not taken our eye off the ball. I know that uh, the world is consumed with what's happening in Ukraine with Russia, but the gravest long-term threat that we face is China's predatory behavior, and we let the Japanese public know that we're there. We're focused on it. Uh, we also wanted Kim Jong-un to hear that in North Korea. He's back at it again, and uh, we certainly want the Chinese Communist Party and their leadership to know that the United States sees this as the most strategic part of the world and an area we're going to continue to stand side by side and shoulder to shoulder to allies like Japan, like South Korea. I hope that President Biden continues to convey that strength and looks for opportunities, and I think that he is going to, to deepen our economic ties, to deepen our military cooperation. Uh, the Japanese have already said they're going to step up and double their military budget. Uh, we encourage them on our trips, and there's Carden and Cornyn and myself, to make this not just a procurement exercise, but to really work hard to do more joint exercises with us, more training. Interoperability and capability is what we want to see, and we want to see it as rapidly as possible. So that yeah. means a, a lot closer coordination, and I think we can do it. And a lot of those efforts are about, of course, self-defense, but also sending a message to Beijing and as concerned as Americans are about China, and there's many reasons to be concerned, you just, I think, ticked through a lot of them right there. You can only imagine how a lot of those worries and anxieties might be magnified significantly to people living right in the backyard of communist China, whether it's in South Korea or Japan, of course, and I have to mention Taiwan. What is the appropriate posture vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan here? Because I know some of it is delicate. The Chinese seem to be watching what's happening in Ukraine very carefully. There's a widespread expectation that at some point they might try to move on Taiwan uh, you know, forcibly and, and take it by military force. What do you think the American stance on Taiwan ought to be and what the president should do and say? Well, you, you hit the nail on the head in terms of the concerns of our allies in the region because of their proximity to China. They are deeply concerned, much more so than, than anyone else. Again, because of their proximity, the threat is imminent for them. 
And everyone in that region is looking at the Taiwan Strait and deeply concerned that were China to move on Taiwan, they're next. So the, the, the situation, if you can bear with me, I, I think is, is, is bears recalculation from, from President Xi Jinping. I can only imagine the conversation that took place between Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping before the Olympics. This is when they announced their you know, unrestricted partnership, one that would know no mm-hmm. bounds. And I'm certain that Putin told Xi at that time, look, give us some cover in the United Nations Security Council. We're going to be in. We're going to get this done. We'll be in and out in a week. Ukraine's going to surrender. We'll get uh, NATO divided over this. We'll get the U.S. wrapped around its axle politically, and we'll, road, we'll, we'll lay out a roadmap for you to take Taiwan. I'm sure she said, well, what do I get for it? And uh, Putin cut him a below-market deal on natural gas. And, and by the way, she said to Putin, you got to wait till the Olympics are over. That was a big mistake. Putin goes in the day after the Olympics. You saw the disaster unfold. Uh, Putin gravely miscalculated the response of the Ukrainians. He also miscalculated the corruption in his own army. Uh, the fact is the equipment was, was not just enough. And this has been a nightmarish situation for Vladimir Putin. It's been a nightmare for the Ukrainian people, too. But she has watched all of this, and I hope that he is recalculating based on Putin's failures and the fact that Putin has turned out to be a pariah in the eyes of the world. But the other thing that she is watching is our response. And he's watching a non-serious administration here in America, an administration that won't defend its own southern border, an administration that will allow over 160 different nationalities to be apprehended illegally crossing into our country and will do nothing about it. It sees an administration that allows China and its criminal elements in China to work with the criminal elements in Mexico and the drug cartels to wage war on our youth by shipping fentanyl into America. They've already killed over 100,000 young people last year uh, with with overdose deaths here in America. It's the number one cause of death between the ages of 18 and 45, most of it fentanyl coming from China, and this administration is doing nothing about it. The war that the Biden administration waged on United States industry must be just – President Xi must be looking at this and just think, how could they be this stupid? Uh, we are putting ourselves at a disadvantage. We have basically funded and subsidized the war in Ukraine because we've driven the price of oil so high that Putin has been able to fund and, and basically pay for the entire military operation against Ukraine because of the high oil prices that Biden has precipitated. So, I, you know, I think it's a mixed well, bag in terms of what she is looking at. On that point, since you mentioned Ukraine and the war there that Russia is waging against our allies in Kiev and all around that country, and the fact that Putin, of course, they've taken a huge hit financially, economically, because of all these sanctions and the international pariah status, but the rising energy costs around the world has definitely helped them. That has been one element that has been positive for them. You just yesterday were one of only 11 senators to vote against the aid package to Ukraine, $40 billion. It was an overwhelming vote, 86 to 11. You were one of those no votes. What was your thinking behind casting the vote the way that you did? Because it sounds from what you just said that you are pro-Ukraine and rooting for them. But, you know, here was an opportunity to give them even more money potentially to even achieve military victory over putin and russia and you didn't think that was the right approach why well i very carefully about my my vote guy i'm the sanctions i pushed biden hard to do sanctions much earlier to actually have a deterrent effect he wouldn't do anything until after he wanted to wait till after Putin invaded the Ukraine. I wanted to actually deter this. But I also want to see our allies in Europe step up and, and, and carry 
you know, their fair share of the weight, too. Uh, they have basically been almost even with us in terms of aid that's gone in so far. Now we want to move in and, and put in four times as much as the Europeans have done. This amount of money, Guy, $40 billion, is more the enti- than the entire state budget of Tennessee. Very few, um, you know, very little oversight in there. Very, this did not go through any type of committee hearings. It's got poison pills in it that will allow for more, quote, migration assistance. This is the same mess that came out of Afghanistan that the State Department can't handle. It's a disaster. Uh, you know, they, the size of this package and the way it was put together, something that I was very uncomfortable with, and it's particularly hard to justify that here in America, here in Tennessee, when we have so many other problems that we're facing and confronting. We're going to pile this much more debt on the backs of our children and grandchildren. There is also a better answer, and this is what I want to emphasize. Without having to put a $40 billion price tag on it, Joe Biden could turn around tomorrow and end his war on American energy. He could say we're getting back into business. He could send that signal to the capital markets that would have an immediate and dramatic impact in terms of lowering the cost of energy around the world, lowering the revenue stream that's available to Vladimir Putin, we would, in fact, defund his war on Ukraine by doing this, and we would address the inflation that's going on here at home. We're not presented with that choice. That's a far better policy choice than sending $40 billion over there with few checks and balances. So given that situation, I wanted to send a message to the administration that I'm not supporting uh, a move of this size and this magnitude without addressing the more straightforward and, and, and clearly strategic options that are available to us right now. They want to ignore that. They want to say that the only option is to send $40 billion, again, the size of the state of Tennessee's entire annual budget, uh, rather than pursue things that much more benefit America and our economy here at home. Right, although a majority of your colleagues, even on the Republican side, disagreed, came to a different conclusion. I assume you can understand their thought process here and why it would be worth it. Do you think if the dollar amount were lower and it was a little bit more targeted, would that be the type of thing that you could have supported? Was it just uh, the scope of it? Was there just too much you couldn't quite get there? The, the, the scope of it was, was far too much for me, and the, the lack of, of pursuing all strategic options available to us when I thought there are much more, and I do think that there are much Got more it. powerful strategic options that we could pursue. Uh, I'd like to see this part of a, of a comprehensive uh, approach to, to the matter, and I'd like to see our European allies alongside us uh, instead of just yeah, no, I, I don't. I don't disagree with any of that, and I think the the point on oil and energy independence, I'm I'm fully on board with that, uh, and I, I see the point that you're making. I take your point. Uh, we'll have a lawmaker coming up in the next hour on the Republican side who had a different vantage point on the ultimate up or down vote, and we'll talk to him about that as well. But we appreciate your analysis. Obviously, you think very carefully about all of these things. And we ended up talking about nothing but foreign policy in this interview. We'll have to talk domestic policy uh, a little bit more deeply next time with U.S. Senator Bill Haggerty, a Republican here from Tennessee, which is where we're broadcasting from yesterday and again here today. Senator, we appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Enjoy Tennessee. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Will do. And we will step aside very briefly, come back after a very short break. It's The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Coming up in the next hour, Dan Crenshaw, Republican congressman from Texas. He will be here. That's in just a few minutes. First, we played this clip earlier in the week of our beloved Vice President of the United States, who was giving a speech on something. I forget what even it was, but she talked a lot about working together. And in case you missed it, 
Here it was in cut 14. I often note and have talked with many of you um, about our shared belief that our world is increasingly more interconnected and interdependent. That is especially true when it comes to the climate crisis, which is why we will work together and continue to work together to address these issues, to tackle these challenges, and to work together as we continue to work operating from the new norms, rules, and agreements that we will convene to work together on to galvanize global action. She just is a font of filler words, and she falls in love with particular phrases and just says them over and over again. In this case, of course, work together, which I think we heard four or five times there in a pretty short soundbite. And our engineer, Dan, was out for a couple of days. He's been working on a montage of the vice president because she's got some pretty amazing hits on this front. And we keep adding to the montage. It started as just a few seconds long, maybe 12 seconds. It is now well over half a minute. So without further ado, here is the updated working together edition and version of our Kamala Harris montage. We will assist Jamaica in COVID recovery um, by assisting in terms of the recovery efforts in Jamaica that have been essential to, I believe, what is necessary to strengthen the significance of the passage of time. It is time for us to do what we have been doing. Which is why we will work together and continue to work together. That has a a, a long history of, of being part of America's history. I acknowledge one must acknowledge. There is great significance to the passage of time. And that time is every day. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's going to keep going. It's going to keep growing. We can't do them in short segments, probably. We'll have to dedicate whole segments just to play the montage by the end of this administration in all likelihood. Oh, it's good stuff. Keep it rolling, Madam Vice President. We will keep it rolling here on The Guy Benson Show with another hour coming up. Dan Crenshaw, straight ahead. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A brand new hour on this Friday here on The Guy Benson Show from Nashville, Tennessee today. Glad to have you all here. I'm Guy Benson. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is always free. GuyBensonShow.com. Fox News alert as we begin our middle of three hours. The Dow closing just barely up today after a brutal week. The Dow ending the day up seven, closing at 31,200. Dan 60. Joining us now is Congressman Dan Crenshaw, Republican of Texas, serving the 2nd Congressional District in the Lone Star State. He is, of course, a veteran. He served 10 years in the Navy SEAL teams. He left that service with two Bronze Stars, one with Valor, the Purple Heart, he lost an eye, and the Navy Commendation Medal with Valor, among others. And it is always an honor and a privilege to have Congressman Crenshaw here on the Guy Benson Show. Congressman, good to have you back. Hey, Guy, great to be with you. I want to start on Ukraine and the assistance the United States government continues to give to the Ukrainian government as they fight against the invading Russian forces. 
We had Senator Bill Haggerty, a Republican from Tennessee, where we're uh, stationed for a couple days here on the broadcast. And Senator Haggerty was explaining in the last hour his vote, one of only 11 in the Senate, against the $40 billion in aid to Ukraine, which passed overwhelmingly with bipartisan support. He gave a thoughtful answer. I thought he had three or four really significant bullet points that affected his thinking and made him ultimately vote no. Obviously, many other Republicans came to a different conclusion. This is something that some on the right have criticized, saying, you know, why are we spending so much money for Ukraine when there are issues here at home? Is it too much money? How do you think through these questions when you're asked about it by constituents or whomever? Yeah, well, look, I'd be curious to hear what, what his reasons were, as I said in the past. I think there's there's good reasons to have concerns about this particular bill, and um, and then there's some bad reasons. Uh, look, the good reasons are largely uh, obvious, I think, which are um, it's very expensive. Uh, $40 billion gives people a lot of sticker shock. And I, I do think if Republicans were in charge, if Republicans had had more say in this, I, I think we probably would have gone with a more incremental approach. Let's Let's spend $10 billion here. Let's spend another $10 billion in a couple months as we assess the situation. Um, and, and so, you know, I understand that sticker shock. The, the counterargument to that is, you know, who else it gets to give sticker shock to is Vladimir Putin. And so you've got a Russian army that's largely been degraded, extremely demoralized. And now they just got word that the, the Ukrainians will have a, what, what seems like an unlimited amount of resources for the next few months. Um, that could be a real tipping point in the war. And that's a good thing. Look, it, and this, is, this gets into the bad arguments. So, so the bad arguments against the bill are we shouldn't help Ukraine at all. There's a very small minority of people who believe that. But that's true. They're very loud, um, very loud, if you haven't noticed. Uh, one of them has a, a, a primetime slot on Fox News and, you know, convinces a lot of people. And, hey, look, if you think we shouldn't help Ukraine, then, then, then you better be prepared to answer the, 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 the alternative story that would take place. Russia invades Ukraine, takes it over, gets no blowback at all from the U.S. Let's imagine that. Let's imagine that scenario. No sanctions, nothing. Um, they, they take over Kiev, and they feel pretty good about themselves. Now, there's no reason to think that they would be done there. The Russians have often talked about continuing to invade. And if we did nothing, they would probably feel pretty bold about going after their, their next uh, country, whatever that may be. But it would certainly be a NATO ally. And so lack of action could easily draw you into an Article 5 situation where you're actually at a war. And, you know, the people who don't want to help at all, um, I think they have to answer that particular scenario uh, because it's a serious one, uh, very real. The, the Russians, Russians make threats on a, on a regular basis. There's a reason Finland and Sweden have decided they want to join NATO. And, and, and this has been going on for years. The Russians, Russian military exercises are often offensive in nature. They'll practice bombing Stockholm and invading Sweden. They, they practice and threaten these things. So to just dismiss it like it would never happen, just like everybody dismissed them invading Ukraine, uh, and then it happened, you know, is, is, is to live in, in, in an alternate universe. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'll leave it at that. Yeah, so and I would just say that, look, obviously there are people at Fox and colleagues of ours with Wildly different vantage points on this question. We're quite pro-Ukraine on this show. Others have a, a different 
view of things, and they're entitled to those views. As Americans, we are all entitled to those views, and we should debate them and have those conversations. And I think that you are uniquely positioned to weigh in, not only as a member of Congress, but someone who has served, someone who has sacrificed a great deal personally. You're no chicken hawk. You have suffered and bled for the country. So I sit up and pay extra attention when you analyze questions like this. You're not sort of willy-nilly wanting to send people off to war or mongering for war, you have firsthand experienced how awful war can be. And so I think that everyone should respect your service and your voice in this debate. And if they disagree, and there's a lot of people who do, although I think, as you noted in the polling, most Americans are very much on the pro-Ukraine side of things, now that's fine. You know, Make those points. Uh, but I think that we can have those disagreements respectfully and I think that you just laid out the counterpoint to what Senator Haggerty was saying earlier. And, and again, I think many people in the audience probably nodded along, definitely talking about the sticker shock element and some of the lack of oversight. And, and you brought the counterpoint here, uh, you know, less than an hour later here on the show. And listeners can weigh those perspectives for themselves and see where they come down. A large majority of Congress has weighed in on this. And that money will flow to Kiev and to Zelensky and his forces. Uh, that die has been cast, and it, it wasn't particularly close. And if there's going to be more calls for more aid in the future, I think we should reassess and reevaluate based on the facts on the ground. That should be the number one consideration, of course, with the strategic context as well. Closer to home, Congressman Crenshaw, I want to ask you about a few votes that you've cast in the House this week. And I've seen some of my friends, bless their hearts, on the left putting up memes on social media about how Republicans say that they're pro-life and they want to be against abortion. But once the children are here, they want to starve them to death by voting no on the baby formula fix that or quote unquote fix that the Democrats forced this this total show vote, uh, just a total messaging vote yesterday uh, I guess for some people, especially in their base, who are inclined to believe that Republicans are evil hypocrites on everything and want to save unborn babies but kill born ones from starvation or something, uh, this was a success from their perspective. They got people promulgating and, and spreading these, I think, preposterous talking points based on a bill that was sold and marketed as something that would help fix the baby formula shortage issue. You and all the Republicans in the House voted no on that bill. I would just like for you to explain why to the people who would maybe see a headline and assume, oh, this is just rank, cruel, heartless hypocrisy of Republicans once again or whatever. Yeah, look, and, and, and this came up a lot when we were voting for the Ukraine aid bill. People said, how can we vote for this when we should – I wonder how much baby formula we could buy with $40 billion. I mean people on the right were saying that too, unfortunately. Yep, I remember that. And my answer to them – I mean, my answer to them was, well, you can buy nothing. You can buy zero baby formula with $40 billion because this isn't a money problem. It's a manufacturing problem. And so the Democrats, um, in, in full Democrat, typical liberal fashion – think that they can solve every complex issue with just throwing money at it. And so th this bill is $28 million that really just goes straight to the FDA. So this assumes that the reason that the, uh, that the FDA has um, not been able to solve this crisis quicker is because of lack of funding. 
which isn't true, right? It's it's, it's incompetence. It's overregulation. There's some there's some deep seated reasons. Look, there's some bad luck here too with um, a particular plant in Michigan going down that belongs to Abbott Labs. It supplies an extraordinary amount of baby formula. Now, you can go to deeper structural reasons as to why so few companies supply so much baby formula to the United States, and there's such a lack of competition, and there's been some really good analysis on this um, by conservative uh, journalists and think tanks. And it, it, it gets down to what's called the WIC program, which basically gives baby formula to uh, poorer families. But what it also does is you know, create a market that's not really price sensitive and therefore lacks in competition. Um, the other thing the FDA has failed to do is is um, allow the import of of perfectly fine, perfectly safe baby formula from abroad, uh, specifically Europe. And so again, there's it's it's harder to get these imports in. Uh, this twenty million dollars, the FDA would do nothing. It, it would do absolutely not, it would have zero impact on the current crisis. You're, you're basically rewarding a, a, an agency um, that has that has failed. Um, its bureaucrats have failed to do anything to solve the current crisis. They haven't really moved in an expedient manner um, and in a way that they need to. And why, why would this bill just reward them? So, well, I, you know, I think that's the, the point, though. I, I think, yeah, the whole point of the vote is for the Democrats to say we are doing something on baby formula crisis, and Republicans are against it because Republicans are bad. And they're hoping that people won't actually bother to see what the so-called solution is, which in this case, for the reason that you just laid out, is not a solution at all. And then they'll just be mad and go out there and say Republicans are bad for the umpteenth reason that we've been led to believe. And so, again, in that narrow sense, within, I think, a fairly narrow band of the electorate, the messaging vote was successful. But the $28 million spent or unspent on this uselessness will make no dent in the actual problem itself. So we're right where we were a few days ago, except the Democrats have a dishonest talking point that they can, you know, uh, wave around as we get closer to November. And on that same score, Congressman, there was this price gouging, quote unquote, bill. When it comes to oil prices, gas prices, Americans are hurting, obviously. There's a lot of pain out there. Everything is very expensive. Gas is getting more expensive. It could get up to $6 a gallon. I saw one projection for that nationally sometime this summer. So the Democrats said, this is the evil oil companies. They're gouging consumers. Let's do an anti-gouging bill, which was, I think, again, economically illiterate, but gave them just a little toehold for a talking point. And I'm seeing that shared far and wide as well. Your thoughts on that vote and why you voted the way that you did? Yeah, like, it, it, very similar mindset in both of these votes. Um, short-term thinking, uh, uh, virtue signaling, policy making—that that's basically what's happening here. So you're you're trying to first you have to lie to voters and tell them that these companies are price gouging. That, that's not true. There's been plenty of investigations into this, plenty of scrutiny on this. There there is no price gouging that's happening. Uh, the, the price of oil is a global commodity, and our, our gas stations, our, our, gas, our oil and gas companies are, are price takers. They're not price makers. The, the basic economics 101 fact about the energy industry. So that's the first thing. Now, if you want prices to go down, you, you have to follow economics 101 again. You have to increase supply. And what the Democrats have done and what they're trying to hide with this vote is the fact that they've been damaging our ability to produce more uh, in this country for ever since they took power. 
Uh, they send bad, bad signals to the industry that say, that say look, we're going to tax you. We're going to overregulate you. We want you gone. They've been saying this for years. And so when they take control, guess what? There's not going to be as much exploration. There's not going to be as much investment. Not to mention this administration still has yet to lease an acre of land, of federal land, for any oil and gas uh, exploration. So, look, they're, they're trying to hide the ball here. Um, it's, it's very dishonest. It, it, last time we tried price controls on gas, by the way, was the 70s. And we maybe remember how that ended with very long gas lines and gas shortages and sky-high inflation. It, th- these, these things do not work. Things that feel good in the short term often are not good in the long term. You know, so my last yeah, policy here. Yeah. Does, we, we, we're up on a break here, Congressman, so we got to run. But, you know, failed policies and silly messaging votes that's what the democrats are offering and we just want to get your perspective and and some of your explanation on those votes this week dan crenshaw of texas our guest on the guy benson show we'll be right back back on the guy benson show a little bit of housekeeping here real quick yesterday on the program we promised that if we broke through 10,000 followers on Twitter, at Guy Benson Show, the official show account here on the program, at Guy Benson Show, if we got to 10,000, because we were about 20 short when we came on the air yesterday, just uh, less than two dozen shy, we said, hey, if you follow us and you are listener number 10,000 to follow us, you will win a prize pack. Number one, you'll get a follow from at Cookies Jar 1988, which is Christine's personal account. She will also shout you out on Twitter, and we will mention you here on the air. And we like to keep our promises here on the show. We got a flood of new followers after yesterday's home stretch in the final segment. We're very grateful for that. We surpassed 10,000 comfortably, thanks to all of you, so that's exciting. And our 10,000th follower at Guy Benson Show on Twitter is Jeff Clark, who says he is, among other things, a dad and a husband and a Daug fan. So I assume that would be the University of Georgia Bulldogs. Also the favorite team of my best friend, Mary Catherine Ham, who's an alum. And if I'm correct about that, then Jeff has had a very exciting few months because his team won the national title, beating Alabama. And now his life has gotten even more exciting as follower number 10,000 to the At Guy Benson Show Twitter handle and getting followed. I just cannot imagine how the thrill, even of his team winning a national championship in college football, could compare to seeing the little notification on Twitter that he has been followed by at CookiesJar1988. Christine, have you already done that? Have you sent him a note already? Have you pumped him up publicly on Twitter feed, or are you waiting for some reason? Well, I didn't want to start following him until you announced it. I didn't want to ruin the surprise. So I see. Okay. I'm on that it is... now. Jeff and I are practically best friends. Well, I'm sure he's very, very pleased to hear that. And might be contacting an attorney to draw up some sort of restraining order, just preemptively, just in case. Not a bad idea, Jeff, but thank you for the follow. Thank you very much for listening. Congratulations on uh, this very exciting day for you and for us. Uh, Honestly, it's pretty cool. Wyatt, you seemed strangely subdued about all of this yesterday. Were you excited to see the Twitter account that you 
basically man and operate on a daily basis crack past 10,000 yesterday. Yes, Guy. Very, very happy. Happy it happened on a Friday. And if you don't, if you're not already following The Guy Benson Show on Twitter, you should be. So everyone go follow The Guy Benson Show on Twitter. At Guy Benson Show. Yeah, well, like keep it coming. We don't want to stop at 10,000. But, yeah, to have this announcement on a Friday is extra fun as we head toward the weekend. We'll be having more fun, by the way, in our next hour. Just a quick heads up. We've got Cat Timpf swinging by Fridays with Cat upcoming, plus a special guest in our home stretch. We'll get to all of that coming up in just a short while. But for now, let's take a quick break. When we come back, I want to address a few things that have been said in the pages of the Washington Post and in congressional testimony that is next on The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back half of the show here on the Guy Benson Show, Friday edition. Thank you very much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com, the website podcast, free every day. So I saw this piece in the Washington Post. It's an op-ed, and it is written by a Democratic strategist. And this strategist has worked a number of different places. I believe last I checked, she was working for Pete Buttigieg on his presidential campaign. And in her op-ed at the Washington Post, she was trying to correct the record, I guess, on her party and abortion. And here is one of the lines that she writes in the piece, quote, there is not a single Democratic member of the House or Senate, nor a single Democratic governor in the country who supports the right to an abortion without limitations, end quote. And with all due respect to Ms. Smith, that's just flatly wrong. And it's not a conservative just saying that and casting someone who is pro-choice as pro-abortion with no limitations whatsoever. I'm not making that up. I'm not impugning their motives or projecting a policy preference onto them that they don't actually hold. This is the actual voting record, and we just lived through this extremely recently. It's not a hypothetical thing. There were up or down votes in the House and in the Senate on an abortion law that the Democrats passed out of the House It failed in the Senate, but it got 49 out of 50 Democrats to support it, which allows unconditional, unlimited abortion on demand for any reason all the way through pregnancy, while tearing down virtually all restrictions on abortion at the state level and flinging open the doors to taxpayer funding of abortion. That is what they did. That is what they voted on. We walked through the elements of that legislation here on the show. Part of the reason that we did so is we said in the midst of this national conversation about abortion, triggered by the leak out of the Supreme Court and apparently the forthcoming Roe revisiting when it comes to precedent in this Dobbs case coming out of Mississippi, we said, okay, if we're going to 
look at a post-Roe country, what does that mean? What does that look like? What are some of the myths associated with that? And what are the alternatives on the table? And one of the arguments that we've been making, I think, backed up by a lot of public opinion data, is that Democrats have a position, their official party position now, is wildly out of step with the American public. It is wildly out of step even with the pro-choice position that the Democrats held for years and for decades, actually. We've talked about Bill Clinton talking about safe, legal, and rare. And it seems like the only one of those words that they're interested in talking about these days is legal. Because this bill that they just tried to pass out of Congress would have allowed non-doctors to perform abortions. If you're worried about safety, I think that's interesting. It was an unlimited abortion regime that they were trying to impose through legislation. And whether you agree with Roe versus Wade or not, overturning it does not mean a blanket ban on abortion. I see that Joy Reid at MSNBC was tweeting that. More misinformation. Maybe woke Mary Poppins can get on that in her free time. But that is the misinformation that has been seeded into the public consciousness deliberately for decades. If Roe goes, abortion's illegal everywhere. As we keep saying, just beating the drum, just to try to push back against that narrative with the truth, that actually is false. It goes down to the state level, and states will create a patchwork of abortion policies. And I, as a pro-life person find myself more in line with the type of laws that they're passing in places like Mississippi and Florida. Even the Texas law, the heartbeat law, I would add a few more exceptions. Personally, that would be my preference. But those are the debates that we should be having. And my views are squarely within the American mainstream. Yet I'm called a misogynist, I'm called an extremist, I'm called a radical, and all these things, and so are all the Americans who share my point of view, which would be the majority of us. And it is just pure gaslighting for a Democratic strategist to write up a piece in the Washington Post and say, oh, not a single Democrat supports abortion rights without any limitations. They do. They just voted for it. All of them except for two. I can name both of them. Henry Cuellar in South Texas. He was the only House Democrat who voted against that monstrosity. And Joe Manchin of West Virginia on the Senate side, the only Senate Democrat to vote against that bill. So what, 99% of House and Senate Democrats all voted in favor of exactly the thing that Liz Smith is out there trying to convince the American people is a weird conspiracy theory spread by anti-choice extremists or whatever. It's right there in the voting record. And it's not ancient history. It just happened in the last few weeks on the Senate vote. And before that, the House passed it. And it's sort of like it makes your head spin. One other point on this, on the support, unfortunately, among Democrats, rank-and-file Democrats for this, and it goes way beyond, as I've said, codifying Roe. It goes way beyond a traditional understanding of pro-choice. There are a lot of pro-choice Americans who would say, I am pro-choice on this question, but... Life begins at some point before birth, and we should not be doing elective abortions for all nine months. That is the view of 
most pro-choice people. And those people don't really have a voice in the Democratic Party right now. Notwithstanding the false assertions from Liz Smith. And when you've asked people, and I've seen these interviews, occasionally a Democrat will get asked, is there any restriction on abortion that you would support? It was a question in the Pennsylvania Senate primary, and the main candidates were all like, no, no limits. Governor Polis of Colorado, who just signed a very radical bill, nine-month abortion, basically the equivalent of the congressional bill, they now have that as law in Colorado. He was asked about it on Fox News Sunday by Shannon Bream, and even though he did not explicitly want to say the sentence out loud, his answer was, effectively, yes, we have abortion on demand for any reason through all nine months, and there should be no limitations. That's what the policy is in that state, and that's the policy they tried to pass nationally. So, I mean, this proposition can be tested with congressional votes, as it just has been, and it proves the point being made by Smith is wrong. And then just go around and asking Democrats, hey, please tell us, talking into this microphone, and tell us one limitation on abortion that you support. And you will get hemming, hawing, avoidance, deflection, or among many, including some who claim to be moderates, just an admission. None. We don't believe that the government should have any limitation whatsoever. As long as the pinky toe of that baby is still inside the mother... It's her body. That's what a lot of them say out loud. Or they don't really want to frame it that way, obviously, but that's what their policy preference is. It's inescapable based on what they have supported, what they have said, the votes they have cast. So it's pretty wild to see someone in the Washington Post claiming that not a single Democrat in the country believes in this. Actually, in terms of the elected representatives of the Democratic Party in Washington, D.C., almost none of them don't believe that, Liz, with all due respect. And by the way, we mentioned this the other day, just to fortify my point on public opinion. Trafalgar had their poll where they asked the American people, they gave them five options on what the legal status of abortion ought to be, and 58% of Americans believe that abortion should be widely illegal after six weeks, after the fetal heartbeat, is detected, or earlier. So conception up to six weeks, that is 58% of the country, including a little more than half of American women. You can't call more than half the country extremists on an issue. Like, by definition, it's not extreme. And you certainly can't use that word if you yourself are the extremist who believes that there should not be a single limitation, even in month seven or eight or nine. My goodness. It's, it's actually grotesque. Meanwhile, on Capitol Hill, the Democrats are trying to make hay out of this issue, and it's difficult for them to capitalize on abortion because, A, the public isn't actually with them the way they think they are. They're very much in a bubble. The media is in that bubble very much with them. They're all there together. And then the polling comes in, and they look around like, wait a second. I thought this was going to be a huge benefit electorally for us. Well, not when your position is about as radical as you can possibly get. But still, they held some hearings this week 
on Capitol Hill to try to benefit politically from the abortion question. And it didn't really go very well for them. One of their witnesses that they called on the Democratic side is a woman named Amy Arambide, if I'm saying her name correctly. She is the executive director of an abortion advocacy group. And in a back and forth with Congressman Mike Johnson, who's a Republican, she was really struggling to answer some basic questions and then eventually kind of shrugs and concedes the point that Liz Smith in the Washington Post was claiming isn't true. Listen to this back and forth. Cut 19. So, so abortion should be allowed then, by your definition, for any reason, for any purpose, at any stage, right? I trust people to make decisions about their body. And then when relevant, I think that they need to consult their medical p- practitioners okay. and not is, if it is, Listen, let me just ask you this question. If it is not lawful and morally acceptable to take the life of a 10-year-old child, I assume you agree with that, right? That would be wrong, correct? I believe that. Okay. That is and wrong. a two-year-old child, same thing. That would be murder. We would all agree that's wrong. Then what is the principal distinction between the human being that is two years old or nine months old or one week old or an hour old than one that is eight inches further up the birth canal in the utero? What, what's the difference? Why is it okay in the latter case and not the former cases? I trust people to determine what to do with their own bodies. Wow. Full stop. Full stop. And the thing is, and this is what the abortion debate really comes down to, she says she trusts people to determine what to do with their own body. I think all of us do. The issue here is, at some point, there is a second body. There is a second alive human being body in this equation. So just saying, I trust people with their body ignores the actual moral, scientific, ethical question here underlying, which is where do you draw the line? And this witness giving her testimony, saying out loud the Democratic position, she was brought to this hearing, called by the Democrats, and invited for that hearing by the Democrats, her position is the bright line is birth. And she's entitled to that opinion. I find it ghoulish and gruesome and horrifying. But she's entitled to that opinion. It's an opinion that is held, going back to the Trafalgar poll that I referenced a moment ago, by roughly 12% of the country. Most of whom, it seems to me, are members of the abortion lobby, members of Congress, or members of the press corps. It is a very extreme position. Then there was this exchange, same woman, with... Congressman Dan Bishop, also a Republican, listen. What do you say a woman is? I believe that everyone can identify for themselves. Okay. Um, do, do you believe then that men can become pregnant and have abortions? Yes. Well, the good news is now we can have opinions on this, right? Because men aren't supposed to talk about it, supposedly. And we addressed that argument in detail a few weeks ago and broke it down. I think it is a terrible argument, but it really goes away under their own woke ideology. If men can get pregnant and have abortions, as she just said, straight up, yes, full stop, she might even say. If that's true, then men can have opinions about abortion. And it's not just about, you know, keep your hands off of women's rights. It's not about women. It's human rights which is how I frame the abortion question in general, a human rights question, they've just now added that component to the other side of the equation as well. It gets muddled. 
and they're doing the muddling in some of these cases. I have one more point that I want to make on this subject generally, and I will make it right after this very short break. Stay tuned. Guy Benson will be right back. Back here on the Guy Benson Show, let me wrap up my thoughts on this overall question. In the exchange that we played for you between Congressman Johnson and the abortion advocate about when life begins and when it's appropriate to no longer kill a child, Kate Smith, who used to be a reporter at CBS News covering the reproductive rights beat, which was just propaganda, she has now made the transition full where she is actually a PR individual now for Planned Parenthood. She just remained the exact same person with the exact same views, espousing the exact same talking points, but she shifted from the CBS News part of the abortion alliance to the Planned Parenthood side. And so that video was going around of the clip we just played. She didn't like it, so she said, this back and forth highlights exactly what's wrong with politicians legislating health care. Here you have Mike Johnson, who has no medical background, insisting a doctor answer a question about a medical situation. And this is actually a different part of the exchange, a different part of the hearing with one of the other witnesses, just to clarify. But because the congressman doesn't have medical background, and neither does Kate Smith, by the way, of CBS and Planned Parenthood, then the whole line of questioning, I guess, is illegitimate in her mind. And my point is, well, what about all of the medical doctors who are in Congress? There are multiple physicians who are Republican pro-life members of Congress, male and female. Doctors Marshall, Paul, Cassidy and Barrasso. We had both of them on the show this week, actually, on the same day. Dr. Miller-Meeks. Any one of them could have asked the exact same questions to highlight the barbarity of late-term abortion, and they would be doing so with the backing of the credentials of medical doctors. Would this abortion advocate and propagandist, Kate Smith, have accepted those arguments and those questions as fair and legitimate because the person asking it had a medical degree unlike her? No, of course not. She would find another way to try to disqualify them or attack them. So it isn't about the person asking the question it's the question that they don't want asked at all and this was just an appeal to expertise that they would immediately move on from if you had an actual expert saying the exact same thing making the exact same point which is the veritable definition of a bad faith argument and there's a lot of those going around particularly on this issue when people want to camouflage what their actual position is, because deep down they know that their actual position is extremely unpopular with the American people and deeply off-putting for good reason to a lot of folks, pro-life, of course, but even quite a few who would consider themselves in the pro-choice camp. We will step aside. We will take a break. It is The Guy Benson Show on this Friday. Stay tuned. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson.
Happy hour on this Friday on the Guy Benson Show. A very happy Friday to all of you. Thank you for tuning in. Last hour before the weekend here on the program, our website is GuyBensonShow.com. All the ways to listen live there, and there are many, including through our partners and friends at Odyssey.com, A-U-D-A-C-Y. We also have the free podcast that's on demand every day, no charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. At Guy Benson Show is our Twitter handle and our Instagram handle. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, as it always is in the 5 o'clock hour Eastern time. And we will have with us later in the hour one of the founders of the Long Drink as they really ramp up their expansion across the country. We will ask him about that. Really looking forward to that conversation. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only, thelongdrink.com. Well, joining us now is Kat Timpf, Fox News contributor, co-host of Gutfeld, every weeknight at 11 on Fox News Channel, also co-host of the Tyrus and Timpf podcast. It is Fridays with Kat, and Kat, welcome back. Hey, hey. So I want to start with two stories about inflation and the cost of things going up. There was a piece in the New York Post about a woman who claims that she was charged 40 extra dollars recently at a doctor's appointment because she cried during the appointment. And on the itemized receipt, they described that and docked her for 40 bucks under the line item brief emotional slash behavioral assessment. Uh, would you go bankrupt if yes. you got charged for every time you cry? Yes, absolutely. Like, that, that's part of it. Like, you know, like, you know, sometimes you cry at the doctor. Like, that's kind of all part of the deal. I don't, like, I don't understand, like, how they're able to do that. Because, you know, maybe something really bad happened, and so she cried. And, like, it'd be a situation where if you didn't cry, that might prove you don't have any feelings. So, like, that's an emotional mm-hmm. adjustment, too. Crying is <laughs> It's true if you didn't cry. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, crying is so smart. Like, People who can cry more are better off because you can – it's like releases endorphins and all these happy chemicals without having to take any drugs or move your body. So you're very much in the pro-crying camp. I can just imagine this woman getting a little bit emotional and the doctor, like, turning to the nurse and nodding with a knowing glance, like, yep, 40 bucks, cha-ching, right there. It's like the Spirit Airlines model of doctoring, right, yes. where there's a bunch of add-on extras for everything, including emotional distress. I bet you this doctor probably makes people cry. Like on purpose in order to charge them. Yes, to charge more. It's like you have cancer, <laughs> then they cry, then they go, Just kidding, actually it's a cold. <laughs> That's probably what this doctor does. Go if you ahead. make more money from crying, then uh pretty obviously you're probably gonna you know, you're literally incentivizing to make your patients cry. So this is not okay. Meanwhile, Teen babysitters are now, this is according to the Wall Street Journal, charging clients, parents, 30 bucks an hour to babysit their kids because they can. They, this is, you know, supply and demand and what the market commands. 30 bucks an hour for teenage babysitters. I did some babysitting when I was an early teen. I think I made $10 an hour, I believe, if memory serves. 30 bucks is really good money. Did you ever babysit, Kat? Because I sure did. I, with all due respect and deep love, deep love and affection, 
I'm not sure of all my friends you would be at the very top of the babysitter depth chart, and I want you to either agree with that assessment or push back. Um, well, I would not be a good babysitter because I have better things to do. Um, but other than that, <laughs> I'm, an, I'm excellent with kids, actually. Like, kids love really? me. Now, no, no, yes, they do. But infants, I don't want to go near because you're just, like, scared you're going to kill them on accident. But, like, once they're older than, like, you know, one or two, then, yeah. I never want to hold anyone's infant. I'm, you know, I'm like, my phone screen has cracks on it. Don't hand me your baby. <laughs> and I can imagine like, you being like, you know, getting the phone call. Your friend's like, hey, do you mind coming over to watch the kids? You're like, oh, I'd love to. I just have to go do television in front of two million people every night. Goodbye. I'd be like, sorry, but um, I don't have kids because I don't want to spend time with kids right now. So you made a different decision. So go ahead and have fun. <laughs> <laughs> but I, and that was, me. by the like, way, my not-so-subtle way to come through and congratulate you on the continued success over at Gutfeld. We talked about the ratings a few days ago. Oh, Last week's ratings were just... Success. I thought you were going to say continued success on not getting pregnant, but okay. <laughs> well, that too. Con- congratulations <laughs> to, to you and to Cam on all of that, and no especially your animals. Congratulations I think on not being pregnant, which I think was something we Well, did. I mean, if, about... if you don't want to be... Yeah, I'm not right now, so I think that I should throw out I don't have a baby shower. All right, a gender reveal, like still nothing. Yeah. But Just have yeah, it be oh, like also, a, not pink or blue, but some other totally different unrelated color that comes exploding out of the whatever and then sets the apartment on fire. Uh, workshop that a little bit. But you guys were averaging almost 2 million viewers on Gutfeld to bring this back on the tracks uh, last week, crushing the competition blowing way past Kimmel and Colbert and all that. I had the awesome privilege of being part of one of those days last week. And it's just very fun to see not only you guys succeeding and the show catching on really in a big way. The audiences are great in the new studio. It also just brings me, I have to admit, like a little bit of schadenfreude joy to imagine the look on Jimmy Kimmel's face every morning when he gets the ratings in and he's lost by hundreds of thousands of viewers to a cable show that is about a year old. Yeah, especially because, um, you know, we talk about this all the time, about, like, how, how much smaller our staff is compared to those shows where we shouldn't even, if we were not beating them or coming close, that would be something that wouldn't even be a slam on us, given the, the resource comparison. And so the fact that we are must make them feel really bad. <laughs> oh, I hope so. he was trying to... At, well, and I wouldn't say that except for the fact that, like, when the show first came out, everybody was like, this is the worst show ever. Everyone's going to hate this show. And, like, you know, it, they just went and looked for, you know, little things. Like, they picked, like, the, you know, the things that didn't hit and, like, put them all. And, like, after, obviously, of course, the first episode when we hadn't tried this before. Um, and, you know, put them all in, like, exclamation, like, this is a disaster. So I don't really... You know, I am extremely competitive, but in general, I don't care about, like, making other people sad. But it's another story when people were, like, rooting for and wanting me to fail. Like, you know, because I don't want them to fail, but they wanted me to fail. And it's like, what did I ever do to you? No, and I don't want people generally to be sad, just Jimmy Kimmel, like that specific person. Right. That's all. That's all I ask. People. 
and all the people that were really just you know, they don't want this to succeed. They're just mocking it just because it's, like, on Fox. They don't know anything else about it. They, they don't know who I am. They don't know, like, you know, they don't know who I am as a person or who Greg is as a person or, you know, any, you know, they don't actually know anything that we've said, which obviously is incredibly exhausting. And I'm sure, obviously, of course, just because you work here, you've dealt with that too, where if you're at, a, if you're at like, a mm-hmm. party and, like, you know, you're among people and someone says, what do you – this is, I actually have a question for you, even though this is your show. When someone asks you at a party that, like, you know, like, you're really not, like, interested in, like, developing any sort of friendship with, but it's like a hang and they're there, and they're like, what do you do for work? What do you say? (laughs) So I will often say that I write and talk about politics. Okay. And that's even more specific. Sometimes I'll just start with, like, I have a job in media. That's what I always say. I work in television. And, yeah, and then, then like, if they want to keep drilling down, then they drill down and they drill down, and then you get to the answer. And either they don't care, which is a lot of people, or they care a lot, and they're either very pleased or very displeased, which is why I kind well, of try to avoid it, especially in, like, settings. I was at a wedding a few years ago. We were there the night before for, like, the welcome party and went out to some bar, and this guy had a few drinks. And then he found out where I worked, and he came over sort of like slurring at me, a complete stranger who was part of this wedding that I was also there for. And he's like, how do you sleep at night? Um, And I was like, very, very well. Yeah, it's crazy because this person obviously doesn't know, like, anything you said. They don't know anything about your beliefs. There's obviously a lot of different individuals who work here, but sometimes what I've said when people ask more questions, another thing that I've said in certain situations is I don't want to tell you. Because it's more controversial than porn. <laughs> so I do porn. How about that? Like, yes, like people yes, you're would an OnlyFans star. Less, less controversial. And by the way, to be, care, to be clear, if someone does porn, I don't judge anybody for what they do as long as it's, it's nonviolent. Okay? Um, it, like, you sell crack, that's fine. We're probably not going to have that much in common. But, you know, you do you. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's just, like, so exhausting. Because it's like, then you assume certain things about someone based on, like, you know, this idea that you have, because actually... True, although in fairness, in fairness, if someone was like, hi, I'm a crack dealer, I might (laughs) jump to some conclusions. Like, I I might judge that person. Right, I would. I think I might. Now, here's the thing. You're much more of a total libertarian, live-and-let-live person, which is why this next story, I think, probably bothers you. I don't know if you saw it. Did you see over at NPR, they have set up an employee snitch hotline for NPR employees to report each other for mask infractions because they are still apparently over there ruthlessly enforcing masking due to COVID. And if someone is not complying, you can call up the hotline. And I can imagine all the voicemails on this hotline are delivered in this type of voice. I saw Carol again today violating our policy, and she should be terminated immediately. And the person is almost certainly white who's leaving that voicemail. But I would hate to live in that type of environment at work and look i understand you report certain really egregious things to hr but masking that would i just not that i would be like lining up to go work for that news entity but i can't imagine that fosters a very healthy environment in the newsroom unless they all love it because they're all like compliant leftists i don't know i don't know especially because i feel like yet another thing that I, like, learned in kindergarten was a lie based on how, you know, adulthood has worked out. Because do you remember, like, Tattletales was a thing? Like, even mm-hmm. teachers, if you go up there, like, in, like, kindergarten, first grade, like, maybe first grade so more than kindergarten, where, the, like, the message was, like, if, tell the teacher if it's something you can't handle on your own, you know? 
Like if somebody, like it's one thing if you're being like ruthlessly bullied, but if someone like does something and you say, oh, teacher, so-and-so did this, even the teacher would be like, okay, like, <laughs> all right. And yeah, now no it's like, one loves a tattletale. No one wants a snitch. And, 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 and like that you can, and also how do they enforce that? Like if somebody has their mask on, what if you like just say they didn't? Because like, I guess like multiple warnings, you can like get fired, which yeah. Think of we think of if we heard of this stuff, you know, in like 2019. You know, no, well, it's, how it's we, wild. It wasn't that long ago, but it was like so. Listen, people, you, you can't <laughs> go places without strapping cloth to your face, and if all you over the don't office. Strap that cloth to your face. You're breaking the law, and then or at this place, you can lose your. Why did I lose your? You lose your job because I, I I didn't want to strap cloth to my face. Which right, because I, I have four vaccine shots. I've had COVID twice, yeah. but I had yeah. my mask below my nose over while I was uh, doing some work on Morning Edition. And so now I'm out. And I can imagine, like, putting up posters around the office as opposed to snitches get stitches. It's snitches get a raise where they, where they'll, like, pay you yeah. a $500 bonus for every person you get fired for not wearing a mask properly over at NPR headquarters. That all sounds very super fun, doesn't it? Cat <laughs> Timp is our guest. It is Fridays with Cat, And when we come back, a little sincerely, Cat for our friend and guest right after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We are back. It is the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Last thing, Cat Timp, because it is Fridays with Cat, we haven't had a good sincerely cat in a while where you dispense life advice as you used to do on your Fox Nation show. You're like busy these days. But producer Christine had one or two sincerely cat style advice questions for you. Are you willing to feel them? Of course I am, because it would be such a disservice to everyone if I didn't, you know, share my gift. Yes, I think that is exactly right. So, Christine, what do you have for Kat? Okay, first, this is more of a social question. Kat, tonight I have been invited to a clothing swap party. Have you ever heard of that before? No. So you, you have to, you, you're invited and you have to bring 10 articles of clothing, like good pieces, and you sit around in a circle and you hold it up and you, like, swap clothing. Now, this is my question to you. I, besides the host, I don't know anybody at this party. I am, uh, I'm a friendly girl, but I've never actually walked into a situation where I know nobody. Can I get some tips on, you know, how to feel the crowd out? Um, well, I mean, first of all, the way that we differ, I suppose, is caring about that. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think it's always best to just be yourself because if you're not and everyone really likes you, then all you're doing is committing yourself to future hangs with people that you don't actually get along with in the first place. So if you're yourself and, you know, you just be friendly, be you, swap the clothes around. But if, like, you're not hitting it off with these people, then you don't have to go to a hang again with people you're not going to hit it off with. Because that, that's, life is too short. Hmm. You know, Christine, I would also add, if you want to really just sort of make the best initial impression on as many of them as possible. I think you just show up, be like, hi, I'm Christine. I work at Fox News. Ooh, I, I, yeah. <laughs> I don't think that's going to work in New Jersey. Yeah. Well, it might for some. Okay, like... next question. Okay, next question is my husband is turning 40 years old next month, and he has insisted to me that he does not want anything. He doesn't want to celebrate anything. But I have planned a night in a casino and dinner with like a group of eight. Now, I invited all these people to come together for the dinner, you know, and hang for the weekend. 
I was not aware until my mother told me this. I have to foot the bill for everything. Is that true? Mm, for everything? Like, especially what, the everything? dinner. Mm. I mean, I don't think so. I think that, like, he shouldn't have to pay for anything, but you're, like, married, so I don't know how that works. I don't think so. I mean, you could, but I'm sure people will try to pay, right? Like, people will be like, here's my card. I mean, it's different than hosting a dinner at your own house because, you know, if you're out, that's different. Because I did know somebody who actually hosted a dinner party once and then sent people Venmo requests for the amount of food no. and drink that they, yes, that they can Wow. Eat. And it was different for everyone. Like, apparently this person was, wa- like, hope, hopefully they don't listen to this, or hopefully they do because this is not cool, was watching <laughs> what people were eating and drinking and, like, sending wow. different Venmo amounts based on how much she felt you consumed. So wow. keep in well, mind, yeah. Keep in mind that that people are doing that. So I, I don't. I really don't think so. I mean, everyone's going to get them. So you, you're going to pay for everybody's gambling too. Like no. Well, no. I I think first of all that is crazy. The Venmo thing. I've never heard of that. Second of all, I think if you invite a bunch of people to a birthday dinner and it's out, there might be an expectation among some, depending on the how the invite was worded, that you're going to pay for the dinner, not the rest of the stuff, not the gambling, not the hotel or whatever. That's my take. We got to run. We're up on a break. Cat Tim, Fox News contributor, co-host of Gutfeld every night, including tonight, 11 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. Her podcast is Tyrus and Tim at foxnewspodcast.com. Cat, have a great weekend. You too. And we will be right back. It's the happy hour, resuming after this. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Chugging ahead here on the happy hour, earlier on today's program, we welcome back Congressman Dan Crenshaw, Republican of Texas. Always appreciate his time. Here's part of my conversation, which was wide ranging with Congressman Crenshaw. I want to ask you about a few votes that you've cast in the House this week. And I've seen some of my friends, bless their hearts, on the left, putting up memes on social media about how Republicans say that they're pro-life and they want to be against abortion, but once the children are here, they want to starve them to death by voting no on the baby formula fix, that or quote-unquote fix, that the Democrats forced this, this total show vote, uh, just a total messaging vote yesterday. Uh, I guess for some people, especially in their base, who are inclined to believe that Republicans are evil hypocrites on everything and want to save unborn babies but kill born ones from starvation or something. Uh, This was a success from their perspective. They got people promulgating and, and spreading these, I think, preposterous talking points based on a bill that was sold and marketed as something that would help fix the baby formula shortage issue You and all the Republicans in the House voted no on that bill. I would just like for you to explain why to the people who would maybe see a headline and assume, oh, this is just rank, cruel, heartless hypocrisy of Republicans once again or whatever. 
You look, and, and, and this came up a lot when we were voting for the Ukraine aid bill. People said, how can we vote for this when we should – I wonder how much baby formula we could buy with $40 billion. I mean, people on the right were saying that too, unfortunately. Yep, I remember that. And my answer to them – I mean, my answer to them was, well, you can buy nothing. You can buy zero baby formula with $40 billion because this isn't a money problem. It's a manufacturing problem. And so the Democrats, um, in, in full Democrat, typical liberal fashion – think that they can solve every complex issue with just throwing money at it. And so this bill was $28 million that really just goes straight to the FDA. So this assumes that the reason that the uh, that the FDA has um, not been able to solve this crisis quicker is because of lack of funding, which isn't true, right? It's, it's, it's incompetence. It's overregulation. There's some, there's some deep-seated reasons. Look, there's some bad luck here, too, with um, a particular plant in Michigan going down that belongs to Abbott Labs. It supplies an extraordinary amount of baby formula. Now, you can go to deeper structural reasons as to why so few companies supply so much baby formula to the United States, and there's such a lack of competition. And there's been some really good analysis on this um, by conservative uh, journalists and think tanks. And it, it, it gets down to what's called the WIC program, which basically gives baby formula to uh, poor families. But what it also does is, you know, create a market that's not really price sensitive and therefore lacks in competition. Um, the other thing the FDA has failed to do is, is um, allow the import of, of perfectly fine, perfectly safe baby formula from abroad, uh, specifically Europe. And so, again, there's, it's, it's harder to get these imports in. Uh, this $20 million, the FDA would do nothing. It would do absolutely – it would have zero impact on the current crisis. You're basically rewarding a, a, an agency um, that has, has failed. Um, its bureaucrats have failed to do anything to solve the current crisis. They haven't really moved in an expedient manner um, and in a way that they need to. And why, why would this bill just reward them? So, Well, I, you know, I think that's the, the point, though. I, I think yeah, the whole point of the vote is for the Democrats to say – we are doing something on baby formula crisis, and Republicans are against it because Republicans are bad. And they're hoping that people won't actually bother to see what the so-called solution is, which in this case, for the reason that you just laid out, is not a solution at all. And then they'll just be mad and go out there and say Republicans are bad for the umpteenth reason that we've been led to believe. And so, again, in that narrow sense, within I think a fairly narrow band of the electorate, the messaging vote was successful, but the $28 million spent or unspent on this uselessness will make no dent in the actual problem itself. So we're right where we were a few days ago, except the Democrats have a dishonest talking point that they can you know, uh, wave around as we get closer to November. My full interview with Dan Crenshaw, available on demand for free as part of the podcast, no charge to you every day, Guy Benson Show. When we come back, a little visit with and a word from our friends at the Finnish Long Drink, sponsors here on the Happy Hour. That is straight ahead. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. On this Friday, we are almost there, almost at the weekend together. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free of charge, on demand every day, including on the weekends with Bonus Benson. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we mentioned at the start of this 5 o'clock Eastern hour every day that it's sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. 
They bring us the happy hour. And we always give you the website, thelongdrink.com. And I've been teasing now for weeks about the expansion of this product, which is delicious. We remind you that it is alcoholic, so 21 plus only, always drink responsibly, all that good stuff. And I've been saying they're going to be entering new markets, new states, and we've been telling you some of them as those announcements roll out. But this has been a huge blitz recently. And so I wanted to bring in one of our friends from The Long Drink who joins us from our studios in New York. Evan, who's one of his co-founders, has been on the show. He's a friend of mine, Evan is. I've met Sakari, who is with us now, one of the other co-founders of the Finnish Long Drink. He is himself Finnish. And Sakari, great to have you. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, Guy. Good to be here. So before we get into the expansion and how people can find the long drink near them, what's your background? I mean, as I mentioned, you're Finnish. This is a huge popular beverage and has been for decades, Finland. It's something that Americans really until the last few years probably had never heard of. What brought you into this fold where you and your co-founders figured out and decided, let's take this wildly popular product in your home country and bring it here? Well, you know, it's a pretty long story. Back in the day, uh, I was doing my study abroad here in the U.S. with a couple of my friends, and we became friends with Evan, who you mentioned before. And, uh, you know, long story short, we hung out in the U.S. for for a while and and went to some parties in different places, and then we brought him to, to Finland, visit us over there, and, you know, showed him a good time in Finland, which... Of course, includes sauna that we also invented, as well as eating reindeer and swimming in the frozen sea and, and obviously drinking a lot of long drinks. So, you know, at some point he started asking, okay, what is this drink? Why are we just not having beer or something? And then we said, well, this is long drink. This is what we like to drink. And, um, yeah, long story short, we started looking into it. We realized that it does not exist in the U.S., in Finland, we have dozens of different brands, but no one ever brought it here. So that's when we figured that, well, let's give it a try and, and start working towards that. And here we are um, four years later now, I guess, and expanding nationally. So it's pretty exciting times for us. No, it's it's amazing. And the thing is, so I'm friends with Evan independently, and he was telling me when we first met years ago, oh, I'm starting this new alcoholic beverage company, and it's based on this Finnish product that they love over there. And it's really hard to describe, but you've got to try it. And he was on me for months, and we would hang out. He's like, oh, we got to go get some long drink. And finally, I was like, okay, fine. <laughs> Let's go do it. He's like, there's, there's this bar for sure near your hotel. It's on our list. They distribute it there, so let's go try it. And I was very prepared to smile and <laughs> nod and say, oh, yes, this is very good. Yeah. Congratulations. Good luck. Um, and, and then just never have it again. And then I tried it. And my response was extremely positive. I said, yeah. I have not tasted this before. This is absolutely delicious. I've been a fan for years. Long before you guys sponsored part of our show, or some folks in the audience might be saying, how much did Long Drink pay for this segment? Zero additional dollars. Like, I wanted to do this because I really enjoy the product, and uh, we get it at our house. We've got a barbecue coming up Memorial Day weekend where the Long Drink will be featured All right. you mentioned the expansion so it started in just a handful of states i remember four or five something like that just rough memory here and you were just telling me during the break 
you are now up to 38 states, and there are more to come soon, if I recall correctly. What are some of the new states that you guys have been adding? Yeah, so 38 states. I actually checked that two days ago, so might be already old news, but give or take. Uh, some of the newer states, you know, we went live in Wisconsin. Uh, I think you said you're in Nashville, so we just launched Tennessee a few few weeks ago. Yep. Uh, New Mexico, um, Maryland, Delaware, D.C. Those just launched like this week, so we might not have that many stores or bars yet, but slowly and steadily. Michigan went live pretty recently. Uh, uh, New Hampshire, Maine, you know, it's it's all over the place. So yeah. it's, it's, and it's pretty exciting for us, of course. People can go to thelongdrink.com. They've got a map, so you can plug in your zip code, yeah. and it'll show you where it's sold near you. And in some of these places, they are rapidly expanding. In fact, it's so quick that they are still trying to backfill all the places where this long drink is now available. So if you heard your state just mentioned, there are many others that are also launching. You can go there and... If you don't see it immediately, try again in a week or two because they're just updating it constantly. And I know there's a, a few other states in the pipeline. Evan's told me about that, which is exciting. You guys have had success. I was talking to one of your colleagues about cracking into the top ten in America within your category, which is a ready-to-drink, like prepackaged, premium liquor-based beverage. You guys are in the top ten, and that was last year when you had a fraction of the states that you have now. So I would imagine with the distribution so much wider, so many more people in our audience able to get it. In fact, I got a message, let me just pull this up, from a listener literally yesterday on Facebook who said, hey, just had my first long drink, and you were right. It was delicious. I heard the story behind the beverage from a friend and thought it would be cool for you to share with your audience. So I get messages like that all the time. For better or for worse, people associate me with the long drinks so that they want me to know when they're drinking it, and I love that. Yeah. And so, you know, you guys, I would imagine, looking ahead and projecting more growth, if you were in the top 10 in this category with, let's say, I think it was around 17, 18 states. That's right. If you are more than doubling that in terms of a footprint, the long drink is going to probably really take off, I guess, would be a pretty reasonable conclusion here. Yeah, I mean that's obviously our hope, and and uh, the signs are showing good good numbers so far from the new states, and and the summertime is our key time of the year. Um, between May and September, we sell yep. we sell a lot of the cases that we sell throughout the year. So so this is definitely the key time, and this is also why we wanted to get all these new states uh, ramped up and ready to go for the summer. So then you know when people want to do their barbecue or or a boat trip or golf or whatever you might want to do, a picnic at the park. Or, you know, I, I like to go downhill, ski, downhill skiing with this. Um, so throughout the year, it works <laughs> yeah. perfectly. <laughs> no, it's, it's especially good, I agree, in the warm yeah. weather. And that's why we're doing our summer kickoff barbecue Memorial Day weekend with the long drink, and you guys are generously sponsoring the party. And we have been telling all of our friends about it now for years and everyone on our staff here at the show has tried it and enjoys the long drink. I do have to ask you, Sakari, about this because I was watching an NHL playoffs game, the Stanley Cup playoffs the other night, uh-huh. and I saw on the boards and the advertisements that they have along the ice, there was something calling itself a long drink that they were advertising. It is one of your new competitors. And I looked it up and it seems to me that it's not really actually 
a long drink based on the ingredients, but they're trying to call it a long drink. To the extent that you want to, tell us about the competition. Obviously, you're doing well enough that some of the other big players in the industry are saying, oh, maybe we need to play catch-up and get in on this. What's the difference between the OG, original, authentic Finnish long drink, which sponsors this show, and then some of the imitators that we're seeing out there now? Yeah, so that's, you know, that's pretty, um, I think it's a big compliment for us that the big companies are seeing that long drink is making waves in the U.S. And as I mentioned in the beginning, uh, long drink is a category of alcohol in Finland. So if you go to a grocery store in Helsinki, for example, uh, you have the beer aisle, but then next to it you have a long drink aisle with many different brands. So to us, this is pretty exciting that uh, you know other companies are coming and starting to advertise the category of long drink. And we think that this, you know, the high tide kind of lifts all boats. Uh, so when a big publicly listed company makes their own version and they start to promote it heavily, then that we see that that helps us as well in the long run. But yeah, as you said, it's not really a long drink because it's made with um, malt liquor, meaning it's technically a beer. And uh, what the difference is, is that the taste suffers because we... Our product has a super crisp taste because it's made with distilled spirit. It's actually liquor-based. And uh, this other competitor is made with technically beer, malt. So, but that's yeah, I mean, it's, it's a positive that's thing very, for us. Very magnanimous of you to say, like, oh, yes, we, we welcome the competition. This is very good news. But also, it's not the same. It's malt <laughs> liquor. We have premium liquor. I think that's the key because people yeah. might see it and say, oh, I heard long drink on Guy's show. Is this it? And unless it's the Finnish long drink in the blue can or the white can for zero sugar or the black can for an extra kick of that liquor, um, it's a very distinctive branding. The logo is very distinctive. That's the real deal. The other ones aren't. And, you know, it's nice that more people are hearing about it and perhaps they will hear about long drink, then try yours and say, oh, wait, this is actually much better. That is my humble opinion on all of this. Yeah, that's thinking as well. Yeah. Now, I have to ask you last question, uh, Sakari, before we go. We're almost out of time. For the interview, I'm in Nashville. You're up in New York. I know that Christine, my producer, was extremely hopeful that you were going to arrive in the studio with just arms filled with cases of long drink for her. Did you, in fact, bring any long drink for Christine, <laughs> or she could have to go buy some in New Jersey? No, I came with the, with the Metro, so unfortunately I did not have my car with me this time, but I'll make sure that someone from our team in New York comes by. <laughs> well, and it's also fine because Christine can just plug in her zip code in New Jersey, thelongdrink.com. I think she knows where it's sold near her because she's purchased it multiple times before. Dan's done the same thing in New York. And Wyatt, Quiet Wyatt down in D.C., it is now in Washington, D.C. and in Maryland and we'll see if they might be completing the DMV area sometime very soon, hint, hint, from what I hear. Very soon, Sakari, very soon. a lot of fun chatting with you. Great to have you come in. I just want to say we're just so grateful to have you guys as a very loyal sponsor now for years, which is crazy. We launched the sponsorship right before the pandemic, yeah. literally the week before the pandemic hit. Yeah. And uh, we're going strong. You guys are growing by leaps and bounds. And to any extent that we're playing even a, a small role in that, uh, that's awesome. We're proud of it. It's a great partnership here. And so to you and your co-founders and, and Evan and the whole crew over there, congrats on all the success and let's keep it rolling. Thanks, Guy. And always a pleasure chatting with you. And uh, hopefully we see you live soon.
Absolutely. Let's do it in person. That's Sakari from The Long Drink, thelongdrink.com, our sponsor here on the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Sort of a fun way to ease into a weekend that's going to be a very hot weekend in a lot of places around the country. And hot weather plus ice cold long drink is, I think, a key formula for a very fun, successful weekend for those of us 21. Plus, always drink responsibly, thelongdrink.com. And with that... We are done. The weekend has arrived. So go crack one open. Go have a fun, relaxing time. We are back here on Monday, same time, same place, for The Guy Benson Show. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.